everyone is familiar with the project, you'll know it's got it had a very sort of contentious past. Park, there is much of, of how you have that human connection and that breaking down isolation of things. I think there's a great role in all of that for us as sort of landscape architects, you know, it's almost a call to arms to you know, sort of help address you know, sort of lots of these issues. But it shows us, you know, what can be achieved um, if we're really serious about sort of drastically reducing car traffic and increasing pedestrian space. We really need to now work with our citizens to, to rethink how these can contribute to the health, nature and climate emergencies that we need to face in the modern day. Ensuring that every spade in the ground is done in the most um, efficient way, I mean, addressing all these uh, challenges, you know, um, of the climate emergency. Covid taught us some quite important lessons about equitable access to nature and the importance of nature for health and well-being. A city where women are fully participating in the cultural, social, uh, economic and political life of the city is going to look quite different from the cities we live in now and I'm really looking forward to seeing how that turns out. You're listening to Talking Landscape, a podcast which explores the big issues in placemaking, nature and the environment through conversations with leading landscape architects and practitioners. I'm your host, Laura Schofield, Development Manager at Green Action Trust. This week we are recording the show live from the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons in Glasgow. In this episode, we will be looking at how we can shape public space so accessible and inclusive to all as we transition into a greener future. Joining me are Rachel Smith. Kirsten Taylor and John Rowe. Rachel is a chartered landscape architect with an interest in urban placemaking for health, nature and climate resilience and is assistant group manager in the Parks Department for Glasgow City Council. Kirsten is a director at LDA Design and joint lead of LDA's Glasgow studio. She's a chartered landscape architect who has led on the regeneration of the Site Hill Estate in Glasgow, the rethinking of George Street in Edinburgh the restoration of the historic Union Terrace Gardens in central Aberdeen. And finally, John. John's a chartered landscape architect working with Sustrans, the walking and cycling charity, to deliver their new national cycle network in Scotland. Each of my guests this week have written about how the public realm in Scotland can and is being upgraded to better serve the needs of the community by making spaces safer for women and more accessible for pedestrians and cyclists. So before we start, I firstly wanted to ask you all, why did you choose to work within the built environment sector? Rachel, I'll start with you. Thank you, Laura. Uh, as a young person, I really wanted to be able to do something to tackle what we now refer to as a climate and ecological emergency. And landscape architecture really appealed to me as a means for doing so that was both creative, tangible, and people-centered. Kirsten. Um, I think similar reasons really. Um, I was quite passionate about art and also science and I think landscape architecture brings those together really nicely um, and I think the other thing the profession does is really put people at its heart so it's about um, creating places for people and shaping the world around us for the better so for me there's nothing better than seeing like a scheme that you've designed built and then people actually benefiting from it. Absolutely. And John, how about you? I think I wanted to sort of, you know, I wanted to change the world. And, you know, I love, you know, I love drawing. And I wanted to, to design places that would make a, you know, a real impact on the world. And I think the climate emergency has thrown a real good lens on that. Thank you. 
Um, we're going to start with some questions for Rachel. And Rachel's article is about planning the UK's first feminist city. So a year ago, Rachel, in October 2022, Glasgow City Council passed a motion to make this city the UK's first feminist city in terms of city development. Before we dive into the topic, for listeners who haven't visited Glasgow, can you paint a picture of the city for us, Rachel, and why an initiative such as this is important to the people who call Glasgow home? Thank you, Laura. Uh, a city since medieval times, Glasgow became one of the powerhouses of the Industrial Resolution, with Lady Elder one of the notable exceptions to the city's uh, male industrialists who shaped our, our city at that time. And as part of the 19th century uh, expansion of the city, Sir Joseph Paxton was engaged to create a, a network of city parks around the then outskirts of the city centre, designed for workers to promenade on their day off work on a Sunday and designed to be locked at night. Um, we really need to now work with our citizens to, to rethink how these can contribute to the health, nature and climate emergencies that we need to face in the modern day. Glasgow is uh, proud to host COP26 and really showcase the work that's been done to address net zero. But one pivotal moment was um, pedestrians and women being advised to take a diversion through a dark park at night to um, account for an events-based sort of security closure of a road. And uh, that then resulted in Radio Clyde taking up a campaign for parks lighting and I think really gives us all cause to reflect on who makes the decisions in our cities that, that shape our cities and, and who's impacted by these decisions. And as a city that has M8 running through its heart, it's perhaps unexpected that car ownership is substantially below the Scottish average and gender and socioeconomic disparities really mean that that ownership isn't equally distributed. And so delivering active and low carbon choices that our citizens actually want to use and feel safe using is, is really key to delivering on equalities and climate. That leads me on to the next question, which is, for most people, feminism is an intangible ideology, underpins social interactions. It can be attributed to policies and socio-political movements. But Rachel, what would you say that feminism looks like in terms of the physical built environment context. Glasgow believes that public spaces that are better attuned to women's security and, and practical needs would open up opportunities for women and, and could lead to increased participation and, and ultimately women's elected representation. So I agree that safety should be the, the least of our demands um, given gender disparities in caring responsibilities, a city where the cared for feel welcome and where carers aren't negotiating a city that's not designed for mobility aids or, or, or buggies is also a, a feminist city. A city where women are fully participating in the cultural, social, uh, economic and political life of the city is going to look quite different from the cities we live in now. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how that turns out. What, what are some of the barriers um, a city such as Glasgow faces becoming a feminist city? Are there some features of urban environments which cater predominantly or even exclusively to men? In her book, Invisible Women, uh, Carolyn Correa Perez noted that many cities have been designed around the idea that work takes place in factories and offices and that home is a place for rest and, and recreation. And she said that because women are more engaged in unpaid care work, they have different travel patterns and um, you know they're dropping kids off or they're looking after relatives and they're combining that with their paid work. And some of the, the Sustrans work that, you know, John and his colleagues will worked on that was commissioned for Glasgow really highlighted that women's travel plans are less suited to those traditional 
travel infrastructure that we've all created, you know, because of different travel patterns and the importance of a more integrated active travel network that could look really, really different from what we've got now in supporting women's travel choices. And as a city of industry, we've maybe inherited a city centre that our citizens commute in and out of with some streets feeling empty outside of business hours. And, you know, we're all kind of conscious that since the, the pandemic, many of us are hybrid working, you know, there's very much changes to people's kind of retail choices. And so our strategy needs to repopulate the city centre, um, ensuring livable and sustainable neighbourhoods. And I think some of the work that Kirsten's done at Site Hill is, is, is a really kind of key example of city centres as places that people will want to live and, and, and spend time in um, outside working hours. Um, and maybe I was also going to mention, I suppose, Make Space for Girls and some of the research they'd done and things like multi-purpose games courts that are still very much a, a kind of core feature of our parks being something that teenage girls just are barely using at all. And there's really kind of, that's very recent research that's really called home to me just some of the kind of things that we would have placed in our parks that really aren't delivering for a fair chunk of the, the population maybe we need to rethink. This leads me on really to talk about um, a bit more about the sort of safety side of things and of how you negotiate the differences in experience between women. So for example, increased police presence might make some people and uh, some women feel safer in public spaces. However, it might have the opposite effect for, for other groups. I think at the start of our, our review of Parks Lighting, we we're very conscious that we were starting something, you know, after the ecological emergency was declared, after climate, climate emergency was declared, after the Me Too movement, and we were and we were quite nervous as professionals probably about how we approach this. And um, so in engaging with um, Green Space Scotland and using the, the place standard, we really look to use that as, as a tool to really get a range of, of voices heard. Part of that was holding these workshops at night, which was something I, I've not ever done before. <laughs> and it feels like a strange thing to invite people to attend because you're very, you know, would you like to come and stand at a park with me at, at nine o'clock at night? <laughs> but, but getting those real contributions from people's lived experience and, you know, the idea that... that um, women en masse have a have one opinion on a topic, um, you know, that, that format really let us drill down into that and, and, and really hear from a, a range of voices. Things like CCTV and police presence tend to come up as, as responses that come through quite well in, in kind of questionnaires. And it was very interesting once we actually got to site in the middle of the night, what actually made people feel safer. And that, yeah, that did tend to be the presence of other women events taking place in, in the park in the evening, uh, more kind of exercise classes and, and kind of cafes. And I suppose going back to that kind of Jan Gale quote of people being interested in people, but people making people feel safer. Um, and that's quite a different thing from I mean, some of the qualities that feel really special in a park during the day when you're trying to get away from the hubbub of the city and you want to just sit quietly in a space on your own are very different from the kind of qualities that make a park feel safe in the evening. And hearing that firsthand from women and girls and other people at the workshops was really valuable in thinking about that infrastructure in parks because sometimes the things that you want during the day are very different from the things that make a park feel safe in the evening. Thanks very much, Rachel. We'll hear a bit more um, a bit later on, but I'm going to move on to talk to Kirsten about reimagining the gardens, um, Union Terrace in Aberdeen. As Rachel has just been talking about, urban parks are often at the centre of the debate around women's safety in the urban realm. Kirsten, your practice, LDA Design, recently took on the regeneration of an urban park in Aberdeen. Can you tell me a bit more about the history 
of the Union Terrace Gardens and why it was in such desperate need of redesign. Um, yeah, so Union Terrace Gardens is a Victorian garden at the heart of Aberdeen city centre and it's within the Denburn Valley. So that sort of valley topography um, really means that it's effectively sunken. Uh, with it's got a railway to one side. It's very similar to uh, if people are familiar with Edinburgh's Princess Street Gardens, but on a much smaller scale. So it's only uh, 1.6 hectares overall. Access into the gardens was predominantly stepped and there was only limited access and egress points kind of at either end of the gardens. So there was kind of dead end spaces. Um, lighting was pretty poor. And as the time went on, the, the tree canopies and the shrubbery was kind of overgrown. Um, so the gardens had become a bit of a haven for antisocial behaviour. There was some rough sleeping. And unfortunately, there had been some attacks on women. Um, so on the whole, it was just the gardens just weren't seen as somewhere that it was safe to be, particularly in the evenings. And what was the reaction to the project like amongst the residents of Aberdeen? Did you receive much pushback from the local community and... Why can projects like this often be contentious amongst local residents? Yeah, I think anyone is familiar with the project, you know, it's got had a very sort of contentious past. There had been a number of previous schemes drawn up for the gardens over a number of years. And um, the most recent preceding hours had actually led to a citywide referendum where the plans for the gardens were rejected. And that was about covering the gardens and creating this kind of subterranean shopping mall with kind of ribbons of park wrapping over it um, and it had really divided the city so we knew that we had a really hard job to do to turn this around and really deliver something that the citizens of Aberdeen could really get behind. Um, I think it's such a central space in the city and people really objected to the idea of it being privatised in any way but people had really fond memories as well um, of using the gardens um, People really valued the, the natural and the, the heritage assets and they wanted them preserved. So our approach was very much about prioritising the green space um, and celebrating and enhancing both the biodiversity and the heritage assets within the gardens, as well as listening to people and trying to put people at the heart of the design process. As part of that, how did you engage with the residents in the design process? Uh, you'd talk us through some of the methods that you used to involve the community and what was the most effective sort of ways of doing that, really? Um, yeah, so for us, it was really about getting out there and speaking to just as many people as possible. But we started with some activation events, like distributing Instagrams of the future. So that was really um, about getting people to visualise ways that they could use the park in the future, kind of inspiring people to look at the gardens differently again. We also worked with the artist Nicola Atkinson to create a bespoke installation and event that was part of the activation as well. For that, we created um, these brightly coloured flags. Um, it was called Mosaic Gardens and Nicola created these works of art that were features within the gardens, little hidden aspects that maybe people wouldn't have been familiar with to sort of re-engage people um, with the gardens. And then people were actually invited to take the flags home. So it sort of created new memories for people in the space, but it also sort of symbolised their ownership of the gardens and taking a piece of the gardens home. So the activation events were really key in sort of sparking that renewed interest. And then we did like a very extensive kind of programme of more like one-to-one -one conversations group workshops, outreach to schools. Um, we also took a stall at the Christmas market for 10 days. So I think it was like 
really important to have like that multifaceted approach, um, particularly where there's been engagement fatigue, perhaps to get people sort of reignited and excited about the possibility again. Thanks, Chris. And I think yeah, there's lots of things there that people can relate to. Um, so you talked about Instagram of the future. What do the gardens look like now? And can you talk us through some of your favourite features? Yeah, so I think um, we really physically opened the gardens up. So they're much more accessible, they're brighter, lighter. We've got a really tremendous lighting scheme, which Arup assisted us with, that won a Scottish Design Award earlier this year. But I think my favourite part is the elevated walkways. Um, they're quite a major engineering piece. They form some of the accessible routes into the gardens but also vantage points that overlook the gardens. And we're really pleased with how they sort of appear to kind of morph from the embankments. Um, they're quite organic forms. So we're really delighted with how they sort of translated from the early sketches into the reality. I think they look really look great. Um, and we were talking before about how we make spaces more accessible for women. Another group that we have to consider um, but often aren't considered as part of design is um, groups of people with disabilities. So what does disability inclusive design look like in city parks and green spaces? Uh, how did you address this in Union Terrace Gardens, particularly with the levels and the accessibility issues there? Improving the accessibility was like the number one thing that came out of the consultation so it was a huge priority for us. One of the biggest moves we made was um, removing an existing slip road which allowed us to kind of reprofile the whole kind of northern end of the gardens so we reconfigured it was like a grand staircase that was like the primary route into the gardens before so we quite painstakingly detailed that to reuse the existing granite staircase but reconfigure it with an accessible ramp route that forms a kind of seating terrace space so that's like really opened up access for all where it was quite restricted in the past but it's also just opened up the gardens and made it just feel much more welcoming and it's created this kind of amphitheatre route uh, with kind of rich prairie planting so it's been really great to see people using it with mobility scooters with prams wheelchairs we worked in partnership with two local accessibility groups in the development of the proposals and that went right from the very first early stage conversations right the way through to detailing, material selection, reviewing sample panels on sites, like the, the whole lot really. Um, so yeah, we're really proud of what we've achieved in terms of improving the accessibility. We're going to hear a bit more from John about this, but one uh, last question for you, Kirsten, about your project is encouraging more walking and cycling in the city. Also part of your brief for the gardens. So how did you incorporate that into your designs and how did it connect in with the surrounding area so the new accessible routes um, were designed to accommodate walking wheeling and cycling so um but much more in a care with share approach so we don't have um segregated cycle routes or anything like that with the gardens being more of a destination it was about a kind of two not through although you can safely navigate the space on a bike so everything's designed to for example one of the main access routes is designed to cycle with standards so it's all um, fully accessible New cycle parking was accommodated in the kind of entrance and plaza spaces as well to accommodate for that. But the proposals also formed part of a kind of wider study that we did in parallel, which looked at active travel links throughout the city, particularly to the station um, and some of the core cycle routes. And that's actually been taken forward now 
through the city centre transformation projects that we're taking forward, which includes new um, cycleways and increasing the pedestrian space to Union Street and another seven kind of key streets within the city centre in Aberdeen. Sounds fantastic and um, brings us nicely on to, to John's questions around his, his article was realising Active Travel's green potential. Uh, so John, you're working with the charity Sustrans to promote active transport in Scotland. I knew that already because I'm working with John on a project over in Leven in Fife. Um, so nice to be speaking to you tonight. So why is there a need for active transport in the first place? What kinds of projects are Sustrans working on? As a charity, we're, um, our focus is, um, is on making it easier to walk, wheel and cycle. And we're all about creating sort of healthier places and happier lives. And we work with communities and with local authorities in sort of effecting um, change. And the reason w w w why we're needed, I, th I think, and, and a focus of what a lot of our work is on, is on the fact that streets uh, traditionally have been designed around cars and around vehicles. And we're trying to sort of redress that balance you know, and design them around people. And it's, and it's both the routes and the places on them that, you know, that form the basis of that. And what are the government's climate commitments looking like at the moment? So in, in recent weeks, seeing the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, roll back on some of the UK's major climate commitments and schemes. What does that do to develop active travel in the UK? Is it, is it going to go far enough? Well, yeah, it's, a, you know, it's obviously a really good question at the moment after recent announcements. You know, and in my opinion, the, the, the recent announcements, they sort of weaken the net zero p p policies and their um, inconsistency is also going to be um, like a major issue you know, with businesses and with others who are all you know, sort of driving things forward. And it sort of kicks at the problems you know, sort of further down the road. And whereas I don't think, I don't think that we can um, afford to do that. I think um, in terms of active travel... The picture I mean, is quite different I'm across the UK. In England, there was a sort of a two-thirds cut I mean, the planned investment in infrastructure, whereas up in Scotland, where I work, there's a sort of commitment for, for sort of 24 to 25 to have sort of a 10% of the transport budget spent on active travel, which you know, I mean, equates to sort of a 320 million. What's, what's also interesting about that is that it's linked into net zero and the decarbonisation of transport as well. And they're sort of linking all those policies. So, you know, there's both encouragement and areas for concern, I think it's fair to say. So what does creative active travel infrastructure actually look like? Is it just building new cycleways, putting in more bus lanes? Just describe that. Well, this is, this is I think, a fantastic question to you sort of take. But bus lanes um, and cycle lanes um, are important, and I, I think especially emphasising the fact that access to public tr transport, you know, and linking that up with active travel, you know, is key to um, encouraging people to you know sort of leave their cars um, at home. But in terms of you know sort of creative active um, active travel, I think it's more about integrating you know, both place um, and green and blue um, infrastructure. You know, and creating in infrastructure um, that people you know, actually want to use. And also, I mean, doing that, um, in implementing it, ensuring that every spade in the ground is done in the most um, efficient way um, in addressing all these uh, challenges you know, um, of the climate emergency. I'm um, like a nice example. We've had a recent piece of work in Stobbswell um, in Dundee. 
And there, it was all about creating um, a new public space that both manages um, all the surface water through suds. Um, it provides a place where people are able to rest on a journey. So, you know, having, having a, a, a spot where you're able to rest um, and socialise on an active travel route um, is key. And then elsewhere, um, all around the area, it's been about smoothing out any, any sort of roughness in the pavements, adding in more drop curbs um, and tactile paving and making it an area that's um, accessible for all. And that is, a, I think that's a great example of what um, a creative active travel project should look like. One aspect is, is funding and Sustrans being conduit of, you know, of, of funding. How difficult is it to attract funding for the projects? And why would that be, given the fact there's current environmental, ecological, health crises? Um, why would it be so difficult to get policy and policymakers to see the, the value in the, in the schemes? Um, I think I can speak about the Scottish context of this. And I think in Scotland, policy is recognising the value of joined up thinking. But I still think that there are some barriers which we need to overcome. You know, I think two key ones which were drawn out through interviews for this article were often the funding, the results out of that policy is sort of they're too focused on one issue and not focused on, you know, on solving a few things at once. And it's that thing, you know, it's a spade in the ground. You know, let's, let's ensure it's doing um, as much as it can. And the other issue was about organisational uh, silos in the fact that um, if you're going to do these uh, things well and impact you know, lots of areas, it needs the input of engagement, it needs the input um, of landscape architects um, and engineers I'm all working, all, I'm all working together, you know, from the outset. Yeah, and some good examples that, you know, I mean, you've both spoken about are being, you know, about being, I'm involved in those kind of projects. And I think it's key that everyone's involved from the outset um, in order to get those outcomes. In your article, you give examples of, of other places that are sort of seeing the ambitions to reclaim space from cars and dedicate more to green infrastructure, uh, be it pocket parks and playgrounds next to cycle lanes. Um, you talked about uh, Paris in your article and the Plan Velo to create cycle-friendly French capital by 2026, removing 70% of on-street parking. And also recently, Lambeth Council in London have indicated their own curbside strategy to turn a quarter of roadside parking space into alternative uses. Does this signal a wider shift in attitude or have we still got a long way to go? I think you know, all these schemes are both um, inspiring and help inform people um, a lot. But I, I think unfortunately at the moment they're, they're, they're either seen as pilots or as uh, standouts. And we really want to get to a position where they're seen um, as mainstream. And I think in that, I think we've got um, like a way to go yet. I think, you know, I think policy um, is helping. But I think there's a great role in all of that for us as sort of landscape architects. You know, it's almost a call to arms to you know, sort of help address you know, sort of lots of these issues. So, yeah, I think there is a way to go. But I think there are more things, I suppose, which we can do. And increasingly, um, we've seen the issue of private car ownership and the move to increase green transport options, whether it's walking, cycling, uh, public transport infrastructure. Uh, we've seen that kind of weaponised, really. And with some 
claiming that green transport policies infringe on personal rights and freedoms you know, versus you know, kind of personal travel in, um, in, in a car. Uh, at the start of this year, Tory MP Nick Fletcher stood up in Parliament to demand a debate on the international socialist concept of 15-minute cities, claiming traffic control measures will wreak economic damage and even cost us our personal freedom. John, <laughs> why has this issue become so po polarised and how has it been swept into kind of cultural war debate? I mean, it's an interesting question. And I think, um, in my view, what sort of happened is that quite a simple urban design concept has almost been, I suppose, politicised. And that's then um, incited conspiracy theories and whatnot. But um, the basic idea is about giving people their freedom and choice and so that if they want to, to walk or cycle to the sort of shops or to a school or to you know, a local green space or a more park, when then they're able to, you know, and they feel sort of safe and able to do so. But then equally for those who want to go you know, further afield by, by you know, either public transport or a more private car, well, then they can. So, yeah, it's about sort of a freedom and choice. And that's maybe got a bit sort of lost, I mean, a few of the conversations. And in your eyes, what are the next steps we can, we can and should be taking as an industry? to embrace a greener, more accessible future? I think, and this is after speaking with sort of lots of people about this, I think that there are, I think we need to work hard at joining up a few of the funding streams in order to allow us to address more than just one thing um, on any one project. And there are good examples of where that goes on, like you know, Union Street and in, um, and in Sheffield, you know, it's a great green. But I think that needs to happen more often. And I think, and this is a peculiar thing with sort of landscape, I think often, often maintenance is a barrier. And I think we need to look at creative ways of building maintenance into those initial budgets. I know that's a challenge, but you know, I think it's a thing we need to do and embrace. And then just get more greener things built and on the ground as examples and make this more mainstream. You know, and there are some good things on the, on the horizon, both in Scotland um, and the rest of the UK. So, you know, it's an exciting time, I think. I've got a few questions um, to discuss. Um, any of you are welcome to, to answer. Um, today, we've discussed creating a sustainable, accessible and inclusive future in our cities. What is the role of parks in this? And why are green spaces so important in realising the future? I'll come to you first, Rachel. <clears throat> Thank you, Laura. I think it'd be because back to one of my points about what are our cities for? We've seen big changes to how we work and, and how we shop. And you know, I suppose it goes back to that kind of Yang Gale quote of people being interested in people. And so I think these, these spaces in our cities, whether they're green or, or blue or, or civic spaces, um, you know, it's that spark of human connection, of, of meeting people in real life, of, of people watching. It's all the things you can't get on a screen. And the space we have in a city is how we add value for you know our citizens and our people and parks are as much of of how you have that human connection and that breaking down isolation of things as maybe the things we traditionally consider as valuable as cities like you know office space or, or retail space you know parks may be that space of, of the future uh for me any thoughts john kirsten covid taught us some quite important lessons about 
equitable access to nature and the importance of nature for health and well-being. Um, so I think it's important that we don't kind of forget those. There's obviously like growing awareness and growing evidence base around the benefits of green space, both in terms of like economic vitality in cities, improving health outcomes and building climate resilience. As John touched on, you know, we've seen a big shift in planning policies as well from focusing on growth to, to focusing on a more holistic approach to attaining like multiple outcomes. So I think improving equal access to parks and green spaces is really critical in our cities. And that's, as Rachel said, going to be a really important part of the future. So in order to be a more equal society and get a healthier society and address uh, climate change. And I think as, as John touched on, as landscape architects, you know, we really have the skills to deliver um, on all of this. And, you know, I would really love to see more landscape-led approaches to city master planning in future. So we're not just kind of limited to looking at green spaces. I think that's a really key for our profession. Yeah, I mean, I'd support all of that. And I think just in terms of active travel, I mean, the reason why we do both routes and places, you know, we do a lot of these small pocket parks because we know they attract people out, out to move about. And they're, you know, and they're a great place to either rest I and mean, socialise, you know, dwell. You know, I think is a key part of it. I'm, I'm of it. And I'll come to you first on this on this question, John. And it's around kind of improving active travel infrastructure and designing spaces to be inclusive for women and disabilities. Might seem like different objectives and requiring different approaches, but do you think a more holistic approach to regeneration could actually address both those issues? in an integrated way yeah i think so and i mean we we on all projects you know i know others do as well use um eqias to sort of review sort of designs and you aim to design for um everyone and ideally the sort of outcome of that and you know and the design you output is is sort of seamlessly almost or i mean visibly sort of suitable for all and that's what we're aiming for and um i think that's what we'll continue to do um, yeah, I think that is true. And I think uh, one of the difficult things is actually sometimes getting people to think holistically, um, particularly when you're doing engagement, to get people to think outside of their own personal perspective. And on the, the George Street project, um, we actually use user experience videos um, to try and um, get people to look at the street from different perspectives. And they were really effective. So we had like pram cam, walking, wheeling and cycling um, experiences. And it it was amazing, actually, how it really assisted in getting people to see the street from other people's perspectives. Because at the start, a lot of people were saying, I don't see what's wrong with it. It's perfectly fine as it is. Um, and yeah, that we just find that so effective in getting people to look at it holistically. So I think things like that um, are really helpful. Um, I do have a um, question, Kirsten, I'll come to you on, which is about funding being one of the big barriers to regeneration projects. And obviously there have been some positive developments in this in this area and the regeneration of union terrace gardens received 28 million pound investment uh, quite a large sum compared to say the funding of other large kind of parks and green spaces across the UK and does this investment signal changing attitudes towards green spaces be it in Scotland or more widely and yeah, I, re I really like to think so. I mean, Aberdeen certainly put the gardens at the centre and saw it as the linchpin for the regeneration of the city. And we've seen it here in Glasgow, a project that Rachel's also involved in, the Site Hill Transformation Regeneration Area Master Plan. 
So Glasgow City Council actually invested 120 million investment in green infrastructure. So we were involved in laying the network of streets and green spaces in advance of the housing for this 800 home regeneration scheme. It includes a 20 hectare park, which was one of Glasgow's first newly adopted parks in over 20 years. So here too, we're seeing that recognition of the value of investing in green space as a catalyst for the transformation of place and as a magnet for investment. I think as well, the the greater evidence base that we're seeing built around the economic benefits of urban greening is also encouraging like developers in particular to start to view green space and invest in green space as well as in the public sector. So I think that's hugely positive too. And finally, what are some of the case studies that each of you have taken inspiration from, both in the UK and abroad? Well, there's a f- yeah, there's a few uh, actually, and uh, you know, I spoke to people about all these ones. Uh, there was there was Arabs greener Grangetown, um, in Cardiff, where they've used sort of suds, um, and greening to um improve the s- streetscape, you know, and uh, and active travel at the same time. And that was fantastic. I mean, Sheffield's Greater Green, I think, was another one, uh, where which has been a transformative, you know, you know, it's a regenerative. Um, I mean, Sheffield City Centre. And then I've seen other examples in Enfield in London and, uh, as, as mentioned earlier, the, the examples, I'm in Dundee, but you know, there's some great things going on. Yeah, I think um, not to blow our own trumpet too much, but um, some of the work that my colleagues in London are doing, um, particularly Strand Old, which is quite a, a bold and transformational um, scheme, which has like, reclaimed a really heavily congested road to create a wonderful civic space. It's quite rare to have the opportunity to carve out new public space in a historic city but it shows us you know what can be achieved um, if we're really serious about sort of drastically reducing uh, car traffic and increasing pedestrian space so I think if you can achieve that in highly congested central London then it's a really strong sign of like the commitment to the future greening of our cities throughout the UK. I visited Utrecht in the Netherlands in the summer and they seem to be having a lot of fun with their active travel infrastructure. And I thought that that fun and that creativity um, was really inspiring. And I enjoyed a, a cycle route that kind of looped around in a big loop-de-loop down from a bridge level over the top of a children's nursery and back down to the, the level of the surrounding streets. And I just thought, what a fun way of solving a, a technical challenge. And, and I really enjoyed that. Um, Another thing I took inspiration for, and I'm still trying to persuade my operational colleagues on, was in Barcelona. It seemed that a lot of the operational team, the the people in yellow jackets who kept the city clean at night, I'd say it was was a positive gender balance in favour of women. And so you had women out, you know, keeping the streets clean, fixing bollards, doing the kind of prosaic day-to-day maintenance activities. And because they were on shift from, maybe they had three shifts working, so they were working from like six in the morning until midnight on different shifts and that sense of safety in the city that came I get the women making other women feel safe I I thought was really inspiring to me personally and I'm I'm still trying to persuade my operational colleagues to adopt a similar model. Um, I'm almost certain some of the case studies you've given there weren't site visits or study tours it's because everywhere we go as landscape architects we're just constantly absorbing everything around us so um yeah, always always thinking about those holiday photos and how much that often involves projects. <laughs> but thank you all for an absolutely fascinating discussion today. Um, 
Of course, the current edition of Landscape is available for free online now. You can find out more on the Landscape Institute website.